Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Tanner, and I'll be joined today by a very special guest, Jalen Salah. Jalen, how's it going? I'm great, Tanner. How are you? Doing very well. Very excited to be doing this episode today. We have a, a big topic to cover. Yeah, very exciting and a very major topic. Uh, would you like to just kind of introduce yourself to our listeners, a little bit about who you are, what you do? Okay, so now I'm a visionary artist. I've always been a poet all my life, Jailan Salah. Uh, I have publications on cinema, on film criticism in many publications. I also interview uh, directors, um, aspiring artists on my YouTube channel. So I, I have a short movie coming up uh, where I collaborated with a group of friends. I actually acted semi-acted in some of my friends, you know, like experimental projects. So I think I'm mainly, I refer to myself as a visionary artist, but I'm also a poet, published poet, mm -hmm. published author, but my books were published in Arabic, the novels and stuff, but the poetry has been in English only. So I think I'm just an international citizen of the world trying to do art one at a time. Continuing on with a, a little bit about you, we, we usually start out the show with a, a little media check-in. So more recently, you know, what, what have you been uh, watching or reading, listening to um, anything you've been doing to pass the time? What have you been up to? Okay, so I just watched the Dropout TV series starring Amanda Seyfried. It was really good. Um, I watched the movie The Wonder starting the aspiring actress, or let's say the breakout star of uh, this time, Florence Pugh, directed by Sebastian Lallieu. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. <laughs> and um, I'm also working or I'm trying to work on my first script, which is a very, very, very WIP work in progress stage, just researching and working the juices and stuff like that. Also, I have a very cool interview coming up with Chris Turner, director, and Celeste Wong, his actress. Uh, they all star in this short movie, uh, Leopard Hills. So it's something I'm very excited about. Very cool. You have a, a lot of stuff going on. Staying busy. Yeah. I know we had, we had talked about that a little bit before we started recording, but um, I'm kind of the same way in terms of like always needing a project or projects to work on. Since we've been doing the podcast, I feel like that has been very good for me mentally is to always have a, a rolling thing to work on. Like every week, there's something to be thinking about. Definitely. Downtime for the brain. Not good for some people. Very. Not me. <laughs> it's <laughs> worse for me. <laughs> That's all you're at. For me, I've been, uh, I started started reading the book Zoe's Tale by John Scalzi. It's, uh, it's the fourth in his Old Man's War sci-fi series. I've been really wanting to uh, read the last book in the Expanse series, and I've, I've had it like since it came out. Uh, but I just, it makes me very sad to finish a big series. And so I don't, I'm kind of like pushing that off and trying to fill the space before I do it. I'm doing some warm-up sci-fi before I jump into that. Good. Uh, so yeah, I mean, speaking of stories, we have a we have a massive one today. This is an interesting one in that it's it's one that definitely I know most of our listeners will at least recognize the name um, just as a as a piece of culture. You know, anyone who you know remembers, even someone like me. I mean, I was I was not alive for the Exxon Valdez, but even I remember as a kid growing up, even in the late 90s, people are still making jokes about the Exxon Valdez. It's still very much a part of the culture. So I guess that gives it away. We are talking about the Exxon Valdez uh, today. It's a big story that encompasses, obviously, a shipwreck, but also 
so much more, uh, getting into the ecological impacts. There's a lot of research done on, on the mental health impacts of, uh, of this and other oil spills on communities. So there's a, there's a lot here. There's a lot going on. And so it's a, it's a story that we're very excited to look at. Very much. Um, so a little bit of the, the background of the vessel like we like to do. Exxon Valdez was built at the National Steel and Shipbuilding Company's San Diego shipyard in 1986. And she was the largest ship ever built on the West Coast at the time. Uh, she was one of two Alaska-class tankers built for Exxon Shipping Company. Uh, she was 987 feet in length, 166 feet wide, with a depth of 88 feet from the main deck to her keel. She had a maximum fully loaded draft of 64.5 feet, with the capacity to carry 1.48 million barrels of crude oil. It's a lot. It's a lot of oil. It just sounds, you know, like from an ecological, environmental standpoint, just feel the weight of all this pollution. Like you could just imagine it going down, down the water, kind of like polluting it. So it just kind of makes me. Yeah. And I think especially measuring it in barrels is, you know, if, if you imagine walking to the beach with a barrel of oil and dumping it in the water, how visible and how terrible that would seem. Um, and that's one barrel. So I imagine. times a few million. Um, so something with the Valdez, if you're looking at her layout, something that would mark her as different from more modern oil tankers is her single hull design compared to the double hull structure that would be used today. And given what happens to the Exxon Valdez, we might be able to see why that change was implemented in law. Let's see. So we have a short background section. Uh, we're going to jump to our incident today. The, the bulk of what I'm going to talk about here with the incident comes from the NTSB reports. On it, there's quite a lengthy report. I think it's like 230-something pages uh, on the NTSB report. I did not print all of it. Uh, I printed selected portions because we're talking about an ecological disaster today, and I didn't want to cause another one. <laughs> so around 11.30 p.m. Uh, local time, on March 22nd, 1989, the tanker Exxon Valdez arrived at Port Valdez, Alaska, to take on a cargo of crude oil. Loading began just before 1 a.m. the following morning, and loading was completed a little before 7.30 p.m. on March 23rd. We've never really, I don't think, looked at a, an oil tanker quite this size, and I don't know what I was expecting, but it takes a long time to load 53 million gallons of oil, you know, taking mo most of a day here. I know, right? And we'll see, it, it doesn't take that long to spill it out. Spill it, this is the thing. Yeah. And the amount of damage, the catastrophe, like woof, in seconds. So after loading was complete, uh, they did all their final tests and checks. Uh, Exxon Valdez began pulling away from the dock about 10 minutes after 9 p.m. on the 23rd. She's an enormous ship. This takes a long time. It takes about 10 minutes to pull completely away from the berth, uh, at which point the harbor pilot begins to steer her out of the harbor entrance, known as the Valdez Narrows, uh, with the assistance of a tug. We'll be posting some maps along with this episode, and you'll see why it's called the Valdez Narrows. It's pretty tight in there. As the vessel transited the Valdez Narrows, the pilot brought her speed to six knots, uh, which was the speed limit for loaded vessels in the area. Uh, and exiting the Narrows, the pilot had the Exxon Valdez on a course of 219 degrees, and this is just in line with the regular outgoing traffic lane. Uh, the ship's master returned to the bridge, uh, took over control of the vessel from the pilot, and the pilot left the ship at 11.24 p.m. Uh, so with the pilot off the ship, the master radioed Coast Guard Traffic Center at Valdez to inform them 
he was going to increase his speed to 16 knots. And this is also where the plan starts to change a little bit. Yeah. From, from the ideal course. Uh, he also tells the Coast Guard that he's considering a change of course to use the inbound traffic lane because he wants to get around some sea ice, provided that there's no conflict with incoming traffic. So while, yes, the plan is to use the inbound lane, he is at least checking ahead of time. He's telling the Coast Guard, saying, hey, I'm going to do this, provided that there's no conflict with anyone else uh, coming in. Yeah, the idea of steering off the inbound lane, too, is something that I've read about. And felt like, yes, in the beginning, everything was kind of like strictly monitored and stuff like that until it was kind of like more and more uh, ships and more and more tankers were steering a little bit off. Mm-hmm. So you could tell that, yeah, we have a strict watch, blah, 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 but then all the Coast Guards are not paying that much attention. So this all is a chain of events, and the result is one major disaster that just resulted in massive damage that is, to this day, has some precipice. So at 11.31, the master announced to the Coast Guard that he was changing course to 200 degrees, so this would take him on a more southerly course and he was going to reduce speed to 12 knots. Interesting little detail here. The course recorder on the ship showed that while that course adjustment was made, we know that, um, the speed reduction wasn't. So they were still traveling at 16 knots uh, as they changed course. Oh. Um, and this is one of a couple situations where a crew member or an officer you know, says that they ordered this or they asked for this, and it wasn't actually implemented on the ship. There's, there's a more important one later, uh, but that's yeah. kind of the first one. So shortly after that, an additional adjustment was made, taking the vessel onto a bearing of 180 degrees or directly south. The Valdez was steady on that course by 1143. So the helmsman on duty at the time, he testified that the master also ordered for the autopilot to be engaged. Uh, and after being relieved at 10 minutes to midnight, the helmsman reported to the third mate, um... The third mate expressed some surprise that the vessel would be on autopilot. Because that's not normally done when you're navigating these traffic lanes. Um, You've got ice in the water, you've got other ships in the water, it's a a pretty narrow area. You're you're probably not going to be using autopilot. I've seen video footage of how, in kind of like simulation, of how the path would walk. This is a very narrow lane, guys. How are you even using the autopilot? I, I guess I would compare it to, I remember when I was when I was learning how to drive and the first time that my dad taught me how to use the cruise control, um, something that I never use anyway, um, the first thing he told me about cruise control is never use cruise control if you're in traffic. Like, only use it if you're, if you're you know, isolated. On the highway. Um, so kind of on a, obviously on a much grander scale, it's kind of what we have here. So it makes sense that the third mate might be at least a little surprised at this, especially if they're deviating from their normal course. So the second mate was scheduled to come on watch to relieve the third mate at this time, but the third mate decided not to call him. If, if you were like reading this report with no foreknowledge of the incident, this is kind of the first thing that's like a red flag. Yeah. Of sort of one crew member taking the initiative just not to bring another crew member on to watch. This is explained later in the NTSB report that the second mate was tired at the time, leading the third mate to extend his own watch. So the second mate told the NTSB that he and the third mate would, quote, cover one another when needed. Now, since the chief mate on board, he had overseen the loading operation, and they didn't like to, they didn't like to split watches during loading. 
So he had been there for the whole process. As we saw, that was a very long process. He had overseen that, so they both planned to stand extra watch hours to allow the chief mate to rest. And yeah, I think even... Questionable decisions? I don't know. Even to someone who hasn't read these, um, these sorts of like reports or incidents, I think anyone who's had a job where you work with other people and you have you know, shifts and hours to cover, you know how it is when you have this threadbare coverage of hours, you know, saying just the bare minimum needed, as soon as one, one thing goes wrong, one person gets sick, one person can't work their whole shift, that throws everything out of, out of balance uh, because you have no, there, there's no leeway. There's no, there's no backup. There's no room for a change. There's no room for, you know, like, um, okay, we can cover this. Like, this doesn't sound even like uh, an alternate scenario. It feels like this is a chain of events, one bad decision after the other. Mm-hmm. And subsequently, the result was the spill. So now you kind of have this setup where you you have crew covering watches for each other for a crew member who's relatively more tired being covered by crews that are relatively less tired, but no one has enough rest. No one has the amount that they should be getting. And so it's just kind of a matter of what's the least bad situation we can have here. But you know that there will be a bad situation eventually. Like, you know something is going to happen. This is what I read too, I think, like... Everybody was expecting that something would happen. Not that, what if something happens? No, they they just didn't know when. Uh, So the master left the bridge at 11.52 to send some messages, telling the third mate to call him when he began turning to re-enter the traffic lanes, if the master wasn't already back. This is another big red flag that comes out, certainly in the investigation, of as they're navigating this uh, narrow passage, um, these are traffic lanes, and they're deviating from their course. With the master gone, they don't have the minimum required crew on, on the bridge watch. So that in itself, even if even if they had not run aground, that still would have been a violation. The third mate testified that he estimated a 0.9 mile gap between Bly Reef and the ice flow that they were trying to get around. This is the gap that they've got to enter before they turn back into the traffic lanes. The third mate said he didn't consider reducing speed because the decision had been made to go around rather than through. Quoting from the NTSB report here, The Exxon Shipping Company's bridge organization manual states that watch condition C is required during clear visibility when arriving or leaving port or operating in congested waters, and it also states that either the master or the chief mate is to be on the bridge in charge of the watch. So like we said, by just having the third mate on the bridge at the time, this is a, a pretty clear uh, violation of company policy. Definitely. Very. And like we've talked about before, I, I know we discussed this uh, in our episode on the Karina Sea, where we had the crushing incident during loading. You know, when these things happen, it's highly unlikely that this is the first time that they happened. You know, it's not like suddenly this is the day that everyone decided not to do safety stuff. This just happened to be the time one too many. Exactly. This is like the time the violations finally resulted in a disaster. Like you could tell this is the way the crew have been dealing all over. Like even in an, you just apply it to a normal workplace. Like, you know, in a workplace people are covering for each other, people are skipping stuff. And then when something shitty happens, you're like, okay, now we're all going to see the results of one act of, you know, like, um, miss. Let me say misbehavior, one after misbehavior after the other. 
so at last something bad happens. Yeah. But usually it ends in disasters. Taylor and I both, we, you know, we, we don't have experience working on ships, but we have plenty of experience working other places. And you can draw a lot of parallels to this where, um, whether it's something safety oriented or not, when, when something bad happens, when a disaster happens, you know, when, when an injury happens in the workplace, you know, for the next, I don't know, two weeks, the next month, everyone's very, very focused on avoiding this. Everyone's very, very focused on their safety procedures and guidelines. And then just kind of the nature, people start getting the nature of humanity, you know, the nature of people, we, we start to relax that concern. We're looser. Yeah, come on. It's over. It's now in the past. It's behind us. So you go back. And unfortunately, you know, like we have the Exxon Valdez we're talking about here. This is a, a prime potential lesson learning moment for the industry. And yet, you know, when we talk about stuff like the Deepwater Horizon, much more recent, yeah. it's a lot of the same problems that have gone either unlearned or forgotten uh, yeah. from these. So expecting to change course in just a few minutes, the third mate pressed the button to engage hand steering and deactivate the autopilot. Right now, the time is about 11.55 p.m., and the vessel's about a mile from Busby Island Light. So the third mate claimed, that's the word that's used in the report, so take from that what you will, All right. uh, that he ordered the helmsman to put the rudder 10 degrees to the right uh, at this time. When interviewed after the incident, he didn't recall checking the rudder angle indicator to see if the course change had actually been made. He also recalled that he didn't order the helmsman to come to a specific bearing. So, for example, if he's you know ordering bearing uh, 190 degrees, because they'd be increasing their turn angle very soon. So he's basically thinking there's no point in asking for a specific bearing because it's going to be changing. Third mate called the master to inform him of the course change, standard practice as instructed. You know he's he's doing the right thing. He's telling the master that they're that, that they're turning. This is also when the third mate informed the master that he hadn't called the second mate onto the watch. And I think that that whole, that whole situation of uh, sort of them deciding when or if to call each other onto watch and then kind of telling the master after the fact, that's also something that I think jumps out as strange and not best practice in these situations where Very the, the, the master's being informed after the fact that you know, this, this decision has been made. And I think that in, in almost any other situation, you'd expect that to at least be run by the master first. You know, it seems like that was a common occurrence. So he, he's probably going to say, sure, that's fine, which is, you know, a, a different problem in itself. But still, that, that to me was a strange portion of reading this, is that you know, the master's just finding this out on the phone after the fact. So just after that phone call with the master, Third mate noticed that the vessel's heading had remained unchanged, still at 180 degrees. This is our panic moment, or almost our panic moment, maybe. So seeing that the course wasn't changing, the third mate now ordered a 20-degree right rudder. Um, and at this point, the Exxon Valdez is beginning to enter the red sector, covered by the Busby Island light. Uh, so the way this works is that from a certain angle, you can see this light as white, telling you, hey, you're still in the lane, you're still good. If you're seeing this as red, that means, you know, as one would expect, you're, you're in danger here. Danger territory. In, in this case, that danger specifically was Bly Reef and its surrounding shoals uh, that they're approaching here. Uh, so about two minutes after the order for 20 degrees right, the third mate ordered hard right rudder and called the captain to say, quote, 
I think we are in serious trouble. I could easily be mistaken, because I'm not a mariner, but it seems to me like any time we've seen a ship of this size, uh, and you have a hard right or hard left order, that's rarely good. Uh, so after hanging up with the captain, the third mate felt Exxon Valdez strike bottom. Uh, this is just after midnight on the morning of the 24th. Third mate said that the contact, quote, seemed to occur forward on the vessel's starboard side and to cause the vessel to roll slightly. About 40 to 50 seconds later, the vessel sustained a series of sharp jolts for about 10 seconds. Third mate now ordered hard left on the rudder. When the helmsman hesitated to follow that order, the third mate uh, physically took the helm and did it himself. The vessel continued to swing through both hard left and hard right rudder adjustments, basically just trying to wiggle this thing off of the, the reef if possible. It seems like a big task for something of this size. So soon the bridge crew began to smell inert gas and crude oil vapor. There were some further attempts to free the vessel until the engine was stopped for the final time at 1.41 a.m. Uh, now, the Coast Guard had been notified by the master at 12.27 a.m., telling them that the Valdez was aground on Bly Reef and leaking oil. Oh. And that seemed to me like a long time. Very long time. Between running aground and telling the Coast Guard about this. Coast Guard personnel ultimately boarded the Valdez at 3.35 a.m., and they started their preliminary assessment and their interviews. Uh, so over the next 56 days, there would be roughly 11 million gallons of oil leaking into Prince William Sound uh, and covering about 1,300 miles of shoreline in various quantities. Adding to this, uh, a storm on the 26th and 27th dispersed a lot of that oil, and it made open water recovery basically impossible. Uh, so focus was shifted to the... Uh, highest value shoreline locations, so things like fisheries, um, where they could kind of focus on, um, and also rescue and cleaning of wildlife. Oil booms that were deployed, they contained surface oil, but they were ineffective at containing subsurface oil. Uh, in, a, in a lot of cases, uh, like maybe we'll talk about, those cleaning efforts end up making things worse, either due to chemical disturbance or mechanical disturbance. So that's kind of the, the Exxon Valdez wreck portion in a nutshell. One of the things that just struck me, the idea of reading, you know, like the damage as in the deaths of the animals, you know, like the marine life, the ecological system, like, okay, let me tell you what I had. Deaths of 2,800 sea otters, hundreds of seals, unknown numbers of salmon, hundreds of thousands of seabirds, 250,000 seabirds died along with 22 killer whales, almost certainly caused by the spill when the whales breathed oil fumes or ate contaminated prey, 2,800 sea otters, 300 harbor seals, and untold numbers of fish eggs. I think like an industry of the Pacific herring fishery was almost damaged, like completely this industry was, was almost destroyed because of this spill. So... The idea that what you just described in perfect and precise detail kind of like resulted in in all this mass destruction of life, it kind of like angers me for some point. Like, okay, you guys, you don't seem to be organized or you seem to be kind of like covering up for each other a lot of times. Like, oh my gosh, I'm tired. Hey, would you take my shift? Yeah, sure, whatever. Or just, you know, like gambling with um, 
movement of such a huge tanker where obviously you should be like covering or measuring each step with ultimate precision. So the idea that this must have been a habit or a or an occurrence that takes place time after time, mm-hmm. you can you cannot be surprised by the numbers and by the massive damage and by the images and videos that you see. And you you mentioned about like the ecological impact, the the wildlife and stuff. And I was reading, I don't even remember if it was one of the one of the sources I included here, uh, but it was talking about basically the optics of oil spills, um, kind of covering how these things are covered in the media, how they're spun at various levels. Um, I think it focused mainly on BP and, um, and the Deepwater Horizon and how, you know, you see the TV commercials after one of these things where ducks and otters and, and all kinds of stuff are being, you know, cleaned. Um, and, and they look all, they look all beautiful after, and it's kind of a, Hey, look at what we did. We, we helped out. Right. And it's like, yeah, but first you dumped like millions of barrels of oil in the water. That's what, that's why you were in position to need to help. And like all of these things, um, any of these times where we have like a, a, a big corporate payout or an illegal situation like this, it's never the executives who are affected by these things. Local communities are basically destroyed because like, like you mentioned with um, the fishing industry, I think I had some numbers here. There was an estimated 85% decline in the Pacific herring population. Um, and also, I think pink salmon were affected too. An estimated $287 million hit uh, there. And, you know, with some of these, these coastal fishing communities, like that is the economy. This is their bread and butter. This is, their, this is what they live off. Like for me, because I'm, I'm from a coastal city, I'm from Alexandria. So I would imagine what would what would happen to some of the fishermen there, some of the people living off, you know, just going out into the sea and kind of like fishing and putting their nets out there and just bringing it. So imagine if this whole thing was off and these people couldn't live off of that. So why? And for mega corporations fighting with the government and whose fault is what on our researchers versus the government researchers. This is nothing. It's kind of like nonsense. All they care about is what uh, our image posted. And just like you said, the way we're dealing and they put all the amazing videos of people cleaning off the shore or just, you know, like cleaning. Although when you dig deeper, like this amazing biologist that I stumbled upon, her name is um, Terry. Terry Williams, biologist Terry Williams, because this is what I loved about her. She was just a scientist staying in her laboratory. And then when she went down there and started taking care of the animals and finding that she couldn't actually clean the animals, like either there were mutations or they were like kind of stuff that were embedded, you know, like after effects of pollution or animals were just dying on her because she couldn't. And I saw all these beautiful seagulls and all the beautiful otters and she had major studies printed on otters. She was like, no, scientists, we should get out there beyond the front line, take care of the business down on the ground. So to just see that and then at the same time watch all the for me the stupid you know like um discussions or interviews or you know like corporate people wearing suits and just sitting and yeah you know this just pisses me off because to them it's just millions of dollars that they're losing air conditioned you know uh, offices <laughs> feeling bad for the world or for themselves and some people's lives are altered forever yeah and i, I think we saw that most recently here at least most visibly with the East Palestine train derailments um, was a couple, a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago at this point. 
Um, and, and exactly like you're talking about here is um, there was even that one press conference that was canceled because the executives didn't feel safe. Yeah. And it's, it's a classic example of like, oh, you don't feel safe right now. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, back to the, uh, you, you talked about um, the sort of digging deeper into the biology of these things. And it, it may have been the same article I'm thinking of with the, the depictions of these. And it talked about the, the visuals that people associate with oil spills. You, you think about an oil spill, obviously you think of the oil slick on the water, you think of it on the beach, uh, you think of you know, like otters and seabirds and stuff uh, getting scrubbed clean. And it talked about kind of the, the mental impact of, you know, uh, people can see, or humans can see a picture of a thousand dead fish and say, oh, like that, that's a shame. But it has nothing on, you know, a picture of one dead sea otter. Um, you know, one one dead mammal compared to, you know, thousands of dead fish is is a massive difference in, in how most people react to this. And so basically, it, it was kind of pointing out that as long as, you know, corporations, as long as biz- businesses can show themselves cleaning the bigger, more visible uh, fauna and say, hey, look, all the birds are fine. All the, the sea otters are fine. The whales are fine. Look, it's fixed. And that sort of ignores the the more micro level stuff, um, how much longer these things can last beyond, beyond what's easy to see. And how it will affect the community on the long run. Like, okay, so yeah, it happened and we're staying cleaning and taking care of the animals and trying to clean and trying to take care of the business. But how about people living off taking care of this? How about people who are actually using this water or just moving, even navigating. How about people whose shores and whose beaches are all tainted and polluted? Like, you wouldn't think, like, let me tell you what you just painted, an image of a sea full of dead fish. You would never think of the fishermen, of the people who mm-hmm. are actually using this as their business. You would think of all the corporate, like an oil tanker. You would think of the factory, you know, like of the people in their closed offices. What I love is the collective consciousness or the collective images that we have in our consciousness of what when something happens. So when an oil spill an oil spill happens, what I think of is yeah the thousands of dead fish. I would think of the tanker and the oil companies with their you know like scary logos for me. But what I wouldn't think of is how, what the environment surrounding the spill and how people's lives were affected, how people lost jobs and lost homes, and how people in communities were negatively affected by this. How in some towns or villages, there were no jobs and people lost their income or lost their safety. So then when you do all these researches, when you do all these um, studies and all that, you begin to look at the root of the problem and how usually for me, it's like a big capitalist disaster that affects, you know, like the lower, lower, lower level of people working down or in the background of things. One of our main enemies on the podcast, capitalism, is here again. Um, and yeah, like so, e- even though uh, y- you could have disasters, situations that you know, kind of on the surface are very are very different, they they come down to some of the same things, where there is this this corporate desire to cut costs, to cut time, to do things as, as efficiently as possible, until something goes wrong. And you know, when it does, if BP has to pay fifty million dollars, so what? They're good for that. They, they've got that money. I think it's, it's harder with oil spills because when you think about it, you don't think like natural disasters. Like when you have an earthquake or a volcano or whatever, and you're always feeling, oh my gosh, you feel bad for people and you're always there. There's a sense of community and love. But from what I read, many of the great sources that you added, that 
oil spills actually result in the community turning on each other mm-hmm. and a sense of dread and a sense of anxiety because people are losing jobs and everlasting depression because you don't know when this is gonna end and you don't get even like have you ever heard of us raising to to just support people who are affected by I don't think it happens that often. I think part of that and and this is this is me basically just speaking anecdotally from from what I've seen people discuss and I spend a lot of time on Twitter that's that's just like doing research right yeah. um is with situations like this whether it's um basically anything involving the oil industry because there there's the the oil industry is is for very good reasons kind of one of the big capitalist boogeymen of the world um terrible things have happened because of the oil industry and i think to an extent when there is a disaster like this when a community that's heavily dependent on uh, oil drilling for example is affected or when you know the industry is affected with one of these um these uh these tanker spills i i think there's some level of association of the kind of the ground floor people with the bigger problem it's not the oil rig workers fault that the oil industry is destroying the planet that's a job that's probably the best paying job that they can get in their community um it pays good money and it, and it keeps the community alive and so you know I, I think i i think i also read uh that that same article talking about like the, the different ways that these are perceived and how there is this outpouring of emotion you know when there's an earthquake for good reason you know there was the earthquake the massive earthquake in uh in uh in turkey and in syria definitely and, and for very good reason, it got a lot of support um, from the international community. And you don't see that same thing when it is uh, an oil spill or, I don't know, even something smaller scale, like a mine collapse, um, you know, yeah. that happens. Um, and I, I guess when it's more of a man-made incident, it, it doesn't generate the same sympathy, even though it does require a lot of the same support. And it's man-made Usually the ones who are controlling the image or the, you know, like oh, the overall situation are the people. So they don't want you to see this. Like they don't want, they don't want you to read what we've read. They don't want you to go deeper and deeper into it. Marine biologists on their knees, cleaning and cleaning. People who are fishermen going in the more and dawn every day to fish, losing their jobs. People in villages, villages completely destroyed because all the shores are have puddles of oil everywhere like i saw this video where it's like you step your foot and when you raise it there's a puddle of oil here puddle of oil there and you can see this little bird going to drink so or maybe if it's kids you know like the kids Mm -hmm. of the fishing community playing how do you know what's gonna happen to these kids how do you know the genetic effect of you know like mutations happening later on because i live in a community with an oil spill, a major oil spill that doesn't seem to be clean. So yes, I think this image is controlled by the people because it's man-made. So they sell you what they want to sell you. They just want to sell you the idea of thousands of fishes dead. So you're like, okay, nobody's talking about the seabed, like the macroalgae and all the creatures of the seabed who were permanently damaged or smothered or physically altered because of that. And this is our planet, you guys that you pay no attention to. This is our planet that we're inheriting or giving to the generations, which is one of the reasons I don't want to have kids because I don't know what I'm going to, what we're leaving them. This is being destroyed consistently by corporations like that. And at the end of the day, nobody even cares. Nobody even thinks about it. So I really wish that some, some other day when, if by any chance, which I hope not, something similar happens, 
the right information comes out, the right people are talking, scientists, scientists now and again, scientists need to be heard on premises at the site of action where they're mm-hmm. down in the ground doing their work. So yeah, this was an eye opener for me because let me be honest with you, when I started taking the topic, all I was thinking was, okay, I'm going to see you at an oil spill. And then it was like a Pandora's box of disasters, kind of like came out in my face and I couldn't even imagine it. So kind of uh, getting into some of the other little, little aftermath bits, because there are some, some interesting facets here that, that come out in the investigations and the, the legal parts. So after their investigation, the NTSB came to the determination of, of a few contributing causes to the wreck. Firstly, the failure of the third mate to properly maneuver the vessel. So connected with this is the helmsman failing to steer that course that he was directed, but the third mate also didn't verify that it had happened, um, something that we'd be expecting an officer of the watch to do. The failure of the master to provide a proper navigation watch. We talked about those issues previously here. And one of the kind of clouds that's always hanging over the story um, in both serious discussions and in tons of jokes I can remember as a kid about the Exxon Valdez is the accusations that the master Joseph Hazelwood was drunk at the time that this incident happened. Um, It's not entirely true and it's not entirely untrue. Um, Alcohol is a factor in the story, but not in the sense that obviously like if you're making a joke, if you're if you're a, a, a the, the late night TV show host making jokes about this, obviously yeah. nuance is not what you're going for. You want to make a joke, so you're going to paint with a broad brush. I remember even, I, I think my first knowledge of the Exxon Valdez was actually from a movie called Rocket Man. Um, when I was a kid, not not the recent movie Rocket oh, Man. Um, no, this movie had Harlan Williams. I think it was a Disney movie. And it's about a, a totally like inept astronaut who has to go to space. They're going to Mars, I think. But anyway, uh, he's talking about like a previous accident in space. And the main character says, oh, yeah, just like the captain, the Exxon Valdez didn't see Alaska floating there right in front of him. <laughs> I love that. I think as a kid, that was my first mention of, of what what this even was. And so, yeah, it's talked about as, you know, drunken captain slams his ship into Alaska. And like, that's not really what happened. Um, kind of before we even get to that, drunk or hungover or otherwise, having only the third mate on the bridge watch was a violation on its own. Uh, Anything else uh, sort of beside the point almost, the manning of the bridge was entirely inadequate because that third mate wasn't even a certified officer of the watch. So you essentially had no certified watch officers on the bridge when this grounding happens. That's a problem. Um, Some of the other things that came out here uh, was the failure of Exxon Shipping Company to supervise the master and provide a rested and sufficient crew. Reduction in crew number placed more pressure on remaining crew. You can see this same practice applied to tons of places right now, whether it's a, I don't know, grocery stores, this happens. Uh, My wife works at a grocery store and it's everything is bare minimum. Um, We want to give out the least amount of hours, the least amount of money as possible to make the margin just a little bit bigger. Same thing going on here. And quoting here from James Liska in Lessons from the Exxon Valdez oil spill, the reduction in crew from 24 to 14 was done to save money. Uh, Other companies operated with five deck officers rather than four, 
and 17 crew rather than 10 authorized by Exxon. So this is not a small reduction in crew. Um, this is not two or three people that they're cutting. And due to these issues with officers of the watch, if there's one, if, if there's one other officer on the ship, that probably takes care of a lot of these things they're having to do to squeak out and cover these, these shifts. This is so capitalist. If you're like, oh, okay, come on, you can do the work of, you know, X and Y. Why, why do we need three people here? Let it be Y. You could feel it. It's that mindset that just makes me so angry. You know, I, I felt like, oh my gosh, I had like my dad's friend. He owned a pharmacy and he was talking to my dad and he was like, okay, I had three pharmacists working. And then I got them all and told them which one of you is going to be the delivery guy and the pharmacist and also work for half price. Two left, and now one is working all of this, mm-hmm. all the manpower. So my dad is now complaining about, you know, like um, delays or sometimes errors or calculations. Of course, are you serious? You had three pharmacists. Now it's just one doing everything for half the salary. To put my spin on it from the teaching world, because uh, I, I teach English uh, in a university preparation program. And, you know, students come to us at, at various levels. Some come to us nearly total beginners. Some come to us basically ready to go. They, they have the, the language. It's more of the adjustment process, the cultural stuff, you know, getting acclimated. Yeah. But obviously, international travel and, you know, international um, academics took a big hit because of, because of COVID. And we still, we still haven't recovered from that. We still have really low um, enrollment. And so what that led to in the teaching world is a lot of having to combine multiple levels in one class. And like, that's a normal expected thing to do. If it's, you know, maybe I've got a level three and some level four students. I can make that work. They're they're close enough. They can benefit from each other's presence. Um, But then that gets stressed out more and more. It's like, hey, can you add a level two student? Can you add, can you bring this level one student in here with the same teacher? And so now you're you're basically making this teacher either make three or four different lesson plans for the same class or combine these things to the point that it's not effective for anyone. Exactly. It's certainly less serious than spilling millions of barrels of oil uh, into the ocean, but kind of a similar thing uh, in terms of uh, how can we how can we make the staff that we have stretch as as far as possible. Um, so not just the company and the crew, but also failure of the Coast Guard to provide an effective vessel traffic system yeah. uh, and a lack of effective pilot and escort. So there's other factors involved here. You know, like we saw at the beginning, there didn't seem to be a lot of monitoring of the vessel. One might expect, you know, once this vessel starts getting uh, on this course to go to go well out of the sea lanes and, and into this, this danger zone, especially this close to Valdez, you would expect maybe a Coast Guard monitoring station to see that um, and uh, notify them uh, and and maybe get in contact about that. Uh, So we talked about Exxon, the big bad guy in this story. Actually, one of the mitigating factors in their legal liability was the fact that other organizations had been almost equally negligent. So it's like kind of, hey, everyone's doing it. We can't put all this blame on Exxon. Uh, And most notably was Alieska Pipeline Service Company. Uh, so this is the principal agency responsible for cleanup and prevention of spills, uh, land-based and in Prince William Sound. Based on the plan that they had drawn up, kind of the theoretical on-paper plan, Alaska was supposed to respond to a spill within 5.5 hours. 
in reality, with the Valdez, this took about 14 hours, and the equipment on hand was inadequate. There was one oil recovery barge, and that was in dry dock waiting to be repaired. So that means there's no oil recovery barges uh, on hand. Mm. Uh, this is from James Liska. I'll just read this quote here. Exxon had actually tried in the past to get more cleaning equipment up to Alaska, and their request had been vetoed each time by the oil company partners in Alaska, including British Petroleum, uh, since it had the majority share. In the end, it appeared that each company was gambling that it would not be the one to cause the spill. And the Coast Guard and the state of Alaska were gambling that the oil companies would be able to clean up their mess, since they knew that federal resources would certainly be inadequate to respond to a large spill. I know this is going to happen, but as long as it doesn't come back on me, my hands are clean. That's okay. Care. That's fine with us. We dodged um, this bullet. Ha ha ha. Let's celebrate. So, you know, we, you kind of have that, not just the fact that Exxon is putting all this in the water, but the plan in place to fix that if it happens is totally inadequate. And Exxon actually tried to spin that to their benefit even more, basically saying, hey, like, yeah, it sucks that we spilled this oil, but they're the ones who didn't clean it up. And I don't know if this was one of the attorneys involved, or if it was just someone writing after, they basically compared that to a bank robber saying, well, it's not my fault I robbed the bank because like someone should have stopped me from doing it. Yeah, where are the guards? This is your fault, actually. You know, it's just, it turned into corporate fight, you know, like big names, big sharks fighting, and the environment dying, and the oil puddles and the oil, you know, spills getting bigger and bigger and bigger and mm -hmm. harder to contain. Because we're delaying, because we're taking time. I, I've got a little bit more here about Joseph Hazelwood, uh, the master of the Valdez. Um, he was charged with four counts under state law. That was second-degree criminal mischief, driving a watercraft while intoxicated, reckless endangerment, and negligent discharge of oil. He was cleared of the first three charges. So there was, th there was never any... Uh, legal admission or legal finding that Joseph Hazelwood was drunk when he was operating the Exxon Valdez. He was, however, uh, found guilty of the negligent discharge of oil. Uh, that's just a misdemeanor, so that was a sentence of a thousand hours of community cleanup service. He was also fined, uh, I think it was $59,000. Uh, in a Coast Guard hearing in 1990, charges of drunkenness and misconduct were dismissed, uh, but, and here's the, here's the nuance to the story, um, Hazelwood did admit to drinking alcohol less than four hours before taking over the vessel and improperly leaving the bridge at a time when the vessel was navigating dangerous waters. So was he, was he driving the boat drunk? No. Was he acting in his capacity as master drunk? So I don't know. I don't feel he is, is the right guy for the job anyway. Like, he seems like someone who just consumes alcohol while working on the job. So either way questionable choice yes he has experience as i've read he did have a history of of drinking problems and this was something that was known to the company which i guess i guess in the technical sense of the word you can't necessarily use that against someone but there's also not a lot of supervision on how he's how he's managing the vessel okay. um so it it almost it, it all kind of comes back to like whether or not that's a factor the things he's doing drunk or sober are clear violations of of the way that things are supposed to be working and and to an extent you, you can kind of keep chasing this up the ladder um if hazelwood is a little bit lax with his uh, who's standing watch and how they're doing that that's not good 
but also he has the guys he has. Um, these are, this is the amount of guys he's allowed to have. And, uh, to an extent he kind of has to make that work. Uh, like most of these, it's hard to put a hundred percent of the blame on any one person. Uh, he certainly bears a lot of that responsibility. There's other factors in place. His master's license was suspended for nine months. Uh, and he kind of unsurprisingly was fired by Exxon after the incident, and he didn't serve as master on another vessel. What happened to him? <laughs> I really want to know what happened to him, like, as the guy himself. Like, let's try Hazelwood and see what happened to him. Yeah, he um he actually worked in law um, as, a, like, a paralegal or some other some other function there. He actually ended up working for the law firm that represented him in his criminal case. Um oh which is an interesting connection. He, <laughs> I forget which college it was. It was one of the state universities in New York. Um, I think he, he taught there for, for a, a short amount of time. That's like where he had gotten his, his, uh, his licensure licensure from. It seems like he had a decent enough uh, career after the spill, just not in, not in the same exact field. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I believe he did work in like maritime law. That would make sense, I guess. And then Hazelwood actually passed away in July of last year um, at the age of 75. Would have been an interesting person to interview. You know, like just, just to talk to him, to see his viewpoint on the whole situation. Like I always, my mind works all the time. There was a little, just a little blurb I saw. I forget where I saw it, but it kind of mentioned how he, he felt a bit like a scapegoat um, for Exxon. I think in many of these cases, that's, Definitely. Totally that's true. much that's much more clear cut. I, I think it's possible for someone to have done something wrong and to be a scapegoat. He he didn't do his job uh, the, the way that he would be expected to. But at the same time, that makes him also a very convenient focus point um, for... It's very easy for them to clear their names. You know, this is what mega corporates do. Like, let's someone who was yeah you guys have years and years and violations of uh you know irresponsibility blah 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 let's pick the guy who could be the center of attention and just throw him in the eye of the media and the public people will start talking about him we can sit down sit back and watch and nobody will remember us which exactly happened you said you just said that it is all about him in popular culture people just making fun you know like it was all him in you know like the public consensus all the public so yeah a couple weeks ago, we were talking with the Spooky Science Sisters podcast about the Deepwater Horizon, and I used one of the same sources to, to get some information here, and it's the article Fetched Up, Unlearned Lessons from the Exxon Valdez by Stephen Haycox, and he, he talks about this a little bit. He's quoting the AOSD report on the Valdez, saying, Today's error-inducing system usually advances human error as the explanation for an accident. That argument effectively closes off any detailed analysis of the system itself by shifting the blame to the most convenient individual available. Totally, totally. And the most, and I think because I'm a writer and I'm, I've been, you know, like in the world of narratives and even, you know, like creating my brand. My sister is a food blogger, so she's creating, and she's like, everybody is a brand. Everything you <laughs> do, brand. Even when you're talking to the family, because I'm, you know, like kind of a rebel, you know, and I have problems sometimes. <laughs> 
my extended family. It's a brand. She's like the narrative. See the narrative. See how people see you as the narrative. So it's always the person with the most lucrative narrative that you can spin. You know, look at this story. The drunk captain who didn't do his job, who has already been charged before. This guy caused the problem. It's on him. This is how they create, you know, like the illusion. Mm -hmm. or This is how they create the story that public goes after it. And you could see it in bits and pieces now, but because now people are more outspoken and you have a lot a lot of young kids who are environmental activists already, so they don't just take anything you throw at them. They go and they research and they dig deeper and they go to the root of it all. So this is what I felt with Hazelwood. On I think on a more recent episode, we, we discussed this in the sense that in a, in a lot of our shipwreck episodes, even the even the the smaller ones, the the ones that you know people have barely heard of, almost immediately every time, you know, even if it's like a, a just a, a Great Lakes freighter or something, if it sinks, um, almost immediately the, sh- the ship the shipping company uh, is very quick to blame the captain. Uh, the captain shouldn't have driven this into the storm. The captain shouldn't have been navigating this close to the um, this close to the shore, whatever. And some of those are, are often valid points, but. What that does is it absolves the company of having to look at themselves. I don't have to look in the mirror if I can if I can focus this on one particular you know standout individual saying well, this is the person and this is the only person who did anything wrong. Yeah, not us. Now let's stay here and let's drink our matcha lattes and be happy. Yeah, sure. Thank you guys so much. Your suits suck. Yeah, I think with these, there's because it makes it easier to talk about. People are very quick to say, well, this was the person who sank the Exxon Valdez. And it's like, there's never a person who does these things. You know, there, there's there's a whole chain of events leading to this. And systematic violations done at each and every level leading to the problem. And I mean, some of that also did reflect back on Exxon. Uh, their hiring practice were, practices were called into question here, saying that even some of the officers they did have, I want to say it was the third mate, his certification came from a, it was like a work from, or a school from home program. Um, and this is in, this is in like the eighties. So, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't like, you know, live video calls. This is probably something that's more based on uh, written literature. Um, so they kind of question the hiring practices there saying, you know, the people that you do have, are they qualified for the positions they hold? A lot of things uh, happening here, I guess, maybe to get into the, the wrap up segment here, what happened to Exxon? Um, what what was their punishment in all of this? So in 1991, Exxon was ultimately fined a total of $150 million for violations of the Clean Water Act, the Refuse Act, and the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. However, there's always a however. Oh, yes. Only $25 million of these fines were paid, uh, with the rest being forgiven for good behavior, including recognizing responsibility for the oil spill, cooperation with the federal investigation, and money spent in the cleanup process, uh, an improvement made to codes and operations. What I told you, it's all about the image. It's all about the narrative. We're good. Look at us. We're just cleaning <laughs> birds. Aha. Yay. And everybody's just happy with them. This good, amazing, mega corporate suckers. And that is true. They did spend a lot of money to clean this stuff up. But again, it's like that. that should just bring you back to like not even back to even, that's kind of the bare minimum. Like, yeah, of course you're cleaning this up. You made the mess, just like with a little kid. <laughs> like, you spilled it, you clean it up. And then now we're going to expect a lot more on top of that. Wow, good job. Which is your job already, because you caused the yeah. mess. Hello. Exactly. 
So they paid $100 million in restitution split 50-50 between the state of Alaska and the federal government. Uh, in June 1994, there was the case Baker versus Exxon. Uh, here, a jury awarded $287 million in compensation to a group of plaintiffs, including local fishermen, processors, Alaska natives, and other parties. I'm not really a legal expert here, so I don't know what the next part means, but Exxon also made $300 million in additional, quote, voluntary payments. Ooh, I'm assuming that's just kind of uh, back like we talked about with Image, if we can just throw more money on top of this and make it look even better. You know, not, not just the money that the judge told us we have to give them, we're going to give them some extra money. You know, this is exactly like what? Yeah, you guys have like uh, factories in China and you have child labor. Let's throw charity. Let's mm-hmm. give the kids and the community. This is exactly, exactly what it is. It's all coming to the same picture, but in just different scenarios. We actually talked about this in our, in our episode on Chicago's Little Lady, the episode that we did for April Fool's. Um, it was a fun, we, we had fun with the episode, but for listeners of that story, everything about the story was 100% factual uh, and, and from, from all of the sources. And one of the things we, we talked about is how representative that story was of just basically how America works of, you know, you dump untreated human waste into a river. And, you know, if you've got $50,000, $100,000, whatever, fine. That's just what it costs, I guess, to dump waste into a river. Um, sure if you've it. got the money for it, why not? Yeah. Uh, there's the commercial fishing aspect. Uh, you've got the subsistence fishing aspect of it, you know, from locals who are just using this in, in their daily lives. Yeah. Uh, recreational fishing and tourism, probably not as of a priority as, you know, compared to someone's livelihood, but it is also a big factor in, in the industries of the area. You know, tourism there is a, is a big thing. Uh, in 1989, it looked like the estimate was uh, about $5.5 million uh, of tourism revenue lost. It just comes back to the fact that none of the people ultimately responsible for this are the ones who are suffering from what happens. And that's a, that's a, that's a story that we've seen before and since this. And we'll see again, I must say. I think for me, this is interesting. It's interesting how much of the published material on the more recent Deepwater Horizon and also like much, 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 much worse Deepwater Horizon, how much of that connects to Exxon Valdez. So many of the articles published about these things talk about both of them. And it's kind of unfortunate that that connection still has to be made. One of the silver linings for us, we read about these maritime disasters, is that usually the lessons taken from them can be applied so that those things can be avoided. Um, I mean, you see that to an even greater and I think more effective extent in the aviation industry um, where uh, something goes wrong, um, a plane crashes, there's a a safety issue. And typically that is fixed almost immediately. And that specific problem doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. And usually that's what we see. And here we we just don't. Um, In this case, Exxon Valdez is usually presented as a missed opportunity for the oil industry and the shipping industry to learn something. Um, We talked about some of the the higher corporate level things. This is an oil tanker, Deepwater Horizons, an oil rig, but the same issues of, you know, staffing levels, um, crew fatigue, um, and trying to see, trying to, to, to remember that these are, these are in fact people with actual needs rather than just a name 
uh, in a set of hours on a piece of paper. They, they work when you look at it on paper, but but does it really? Um, and then that general encouragement to cut corners in order to save time and money. Exxon Valdez did lead the changes in requirements for vessels carrying oil between U.S. ports, um, namely the need to have a double hull construction. So just an extra layer of protection there for a ship that runs aground or, or hits something. The stuff I was reading basically said that a, a double hull for the Valdez wouldn't have prevented the spill, but it would have made it significantly less disastrous. Um, something like less than half of the possible oil spilled. Still a lot, still more than you want, but not the not the scale of the disaster that it ended up being. Um, so there have been some steps taken to avoid that um, on a on a construction level, but of course we're still dealing with the the more corporate level issues. Yeah. And then I guess to put this in context, I was surprised when I was reading this and reading about Deepwater Horizon. I was kind of surprised that. Exxon Valdez, like, isn't even close to being one of the worst spills in history. Like, oh my God. it's, it's, it's like not even on the top 10 list. It, it might be way further down than that. Um, just because of the, the cultural presence it has as this terrible ecological disaster. And it is, but then it's horrifying to see how much worse these things can be, you know, uh, whether it's Deepwater Horizon, um, reading about the the first Gulf War and all of the oil that was spilled on purpose, just an unfathomable amount of oil being spilled both on land and at sea. And, uh, and yeah, there's something, there's something just uniquely scary. I think about oil spills, just this idea of, of just poisoning the earth quite literally at an unbelievable scale. Yeah. Like you have power to destroy or to smother, you know, like when I read that the algae were smothered, this it kind of made me feel like the earth was being, you know, like suffocated or someone was just choking it. This is what I feel. Like for me, I don't know, the idea that you can use all this to pollute, to destroy, to even destroy someone else's, you know, like land or water or whatever. It just makes me feel how diabolical the whole thing is. That's the big lesson we can draw from all of this. This is one that I think going into it was probably a bit similar to when we started the Lusitania. It was kind of a story that I thought I knew. And like, I really didn't. I really didn't know that much about how this happened, actually. I was glad that we were able to discuss this one. Such an eye-opener, really, onto the whole world, not just oil spills. So yeah, I guess if that's all, um, are there any, let's see, any, any final things you'd like to share or, or plug here? Are you on, I, I know you are on social media. Where can people find you if they want to see what you're up to? Well, you can find me on Jailan Salman on Twitter and on Instagram and my YouTube channel as well. Uh, I post everything there. Uh, I have the prose.com. This is the poetry site where I just post all my updated poetry because I write poetry all the time and sometimes even some thoughts and stuff. But on Twitter, we can just have, you know, like a movie chat because I'm very active in the film Twitter community. This is where you can find me, guys. Thank you for, for joining me here today to talk about a, a depressing but informative story uh, on the Exxon Valdez. And yeah, with that, I will say to the listeners, uh, thank you all for listening to us talk today. And we'll be back next week with uh, another shipwreck for you. Thank you, Tanner.